Okay, welcome everyone. This is our tea time question and answer session of the day on day two of the Pacific Hermitage Birkin Retreat. And I hope everyone's had a, a good second day of practicing, um, applying Satipatthana and uh, Ajahn Sona's teachings from the previous two days. Uh, we had a big jump in uh, questions submitted. And before we begin, just a reminder, people could submit their questions before 9 a.m. That gives uh, us time in our process to uh, go through and pick out the best and most suitable questions for any given day. Uh, if questions come in after that, they'll just be considered for the following day. And um, the only other additional consideration is to try to keep them to the theme of the overall retreat and you get bonus points if they're referencing uh, something Ajahn's been talking about in the last uh, day or two uh, because of that cutoff there. So, all right, well, let's get to it. And then first question we're gonna go to is from uh, Heather from Portland. So. Heather, would you like to go ahead and unmute yourself and ask your question? Sure, Ashton. I'm assuming you mean Heather Bakum. Yes. Thank you. Okay, hi. Um, so in the metaphor of the century, hmm. um, let, me, let me remind myself what question I ask. Um, so th say there's already been boiling anxiety or immense grief or other really painful emotions. Um, that it's they've snuck into the city already in the century without the century knowing the village people are trying to tell the century but the century won't acknowledge it because it would be way too painful to acknowledge that um first how would one get the century to acknowledge such a breach i.e um the first noble truth and second how can the century gently compassionately and without aversion remove the intruders hmm. Okay. Um, well, I think I think you've given your your sentry a little more personality and a bigger role than he's been tasked with. Um, you know that you would have to to go to him and um, get him to sort of face up that he's made a mistake or something like this. Um, you know, I, I think I think of this analogy of the sentry as. Uh, somebody like in the in the military who has a very simple role a very concrete job description which is to watch over the gate and he's been trained and he's been informed and he gets a brief for what to sort of look for but you know that's that's really his his only job um and so like in the context of your question you know it's it's really just coming back to sort of update and and inform the century that he's made a mistake and he needs to watch out for more closely for certain types of challenges. And, you know, I know Ajahn's, I don't know, but I suspect Ajahn's going to be talking about this, this model onwards. So I don't want to get too far into it, but remember there's like six gates and this is referring to the six sense impressions, uh, sort of, coming 
to contact the, the bases in the body. And so the sentry is like watching over this, and it's very similar to the practice of sense restraint. And, you know, you are the sentry, uh, a part of your consciousness, a part of the faculty of your mind and discrimination, and it, it's, getting new or, it's getting more information and it's getting better job training all the time um, based on experience. And, you know, we have to get it wrong before we get it right, but we start someplace and then it's almost like there's another part of our uh, practice experience that learns and sometimes learns the hard way that where we need to be more discerning and discriminating against what it is that we, we let in. Um, so, you know, it's, that's, and, and that's really in the essence of it, the, the problem, the removal, um, the sentry isn't responsible for going into the city and rectifying the problem. Like that's, that's, a whole different sort of role there. And you don't want to do it gently and with compassion, but sometimes compassion can be very strong and fierce, especially when there's great danger. One needs to uh, act without haste sometimes when facing a great danger for the well-being of oneself and others. Um, and... One wants to be as gentle as possible, but sometimes it takes strong measures. And what we're really talking about here is in terms of countermeasures is applying right effort to sort of using whatever tools that we have to, to sort of rectify the problem. Um, and, you know, hopefully we, we can over time develop the best century possible because uh, prevention is always easier than uh, coming up with a cure and rectifying a disastrous or dangerous situation. Uh, you know, I think in previous retreats, we've talked about this tool of how to remove uh, obstructive thoughts. This is one teaching that's talking about, you know, what to do when the mind is kind of in a grip, uh, in the grip of the hindrances or a di distracting thought or unskillful thought. And you know, there's a progression of tools that one, or strategies that one uses, could call them tools, could call them strategies, that one uses to try to uh, remove something that's been identified as a, a distraction or an unskillful mind state. And you know, the first of them is just replacing uh, the unskillful thought with a skillful one. And sometimes that doesn't work. And we need to reflect on the danger so, you know, in your example here, you're talking about immense grief or anxiety um, and something of great strength. So, you know, it's like oftentimes just the recognition, just recognizing that we're in the, in the throes of a very strong, unskillful sort of emotional state or afflictive emotional state, it, it isn't enough oftentimes to, to rectify the problem. Um, then you might move, so you might move to sort of what I call plan B, which is thinking about uh, the danger of that to your uh, emotional, psychological health, and also to your spiritual practice. Um, just 
acquiescing um, to some negative kind of emotion that's been let in and is causing trouble and afflicting oneself. Um, Sometimes that's enough and sometimes it's not. And you have to take measures. And in this list, like you, you go down through a tiered set of strategies uh, and sometimes you have to talk yourself out of it or you have to gradually talk yourself down, which is the fourth. But the last strategy is not gentle. It's quite forceful. It's like suppression. Uh, because you're, you're facing like something that is laden with, with danger. And, you know, especially if it's anger and it's anger, a rage kind of with another person as the target or something, you need to stop yourself from speaking or acting on that. Uh, even if it means uh, strongly kind of holding yourself down uh, until you can, until the peak of the unskillful emotion passes or until you can start to employ more gentle sort of measures. So, so that addresses your question there, Heather. Um, is there any clarification or follow-up? I'm curious more about the idea of the aversion that comes with it. So, so in, in, in the analogy, I was trying to, the idea that I'm so numb or like I'm, I'm so averse to this feeling, I can't even acknowledge I'm having it. So the first, like, how do I get myself or, or help others to recognize, I guess, yeah, it's just for me now, get myself to go there to acknowledge like, hey, this is coming up for me. Sometimes I get hung up there. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, well, in reality, we can't, and we can't always know. You know. Um, hopefully, over time, though, we 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 grow our ability to sort of catch these things, realize we're suffering, or realizing, oh yeah, this there's you know way down the line after um, use our analogy somebody's gotten into the city and they're wreaking all kinds of havoc. There's secondary and third level and fourth level kind of problems. And it gets a little difficult to sort of understand the scope of it right away. But at some point, you know, you realize this, this is an affliction. Um, and you might, you might not even be aware of all the original sort of uh, uh, causes, but at, at some point your mindfulness catches up to the fact that there's some suffering going on there. And, you know, in reality, in uh, it, the reality of our lives, like there's all kinds of habits and emotional habits that we have that it takes years sometimes to uncover because we don't truly see them as unskillful and we don't see the full harm um, to ourselves and others that are caused by them. And so and waking up sometimes takes a long time. But, you know, studying the teachings, listening to Dhamma, having good teachers, having Kalyanamita, um, developing this kind of clarity of mind and the, the spaciousness that our meditation uh, brings us allows us to see. You know, I'm, I'm always surprised and amazed at how when we take the time to return to the core practices of trying to still the mind and strengthen the wholesome qualities, 
how one realizes that they had been diluted. You know, just like you can go halfway through the day harboring some grudge or some um, animosity towards somebody and not be fully cognizant that that's what's going on until something exposes it or until you stop. And sometimes, uh, you know, there's something that's going on in my my mind or my emotional sort of mood. And it's like maybe the next time I sit down to meditate that I really have this space to look at myself in a way that's clear enough to sort of recognize, oh, that's, I, that's been there the whole time. There's been this shadow of anxiety following me for hours. And I was only dimly aware of it. Uh, so, um, so, you know, we just, we need to be patient and we need to kind of just keep applying ourselves to, to all aspects of the path. And in time, we get, we get sharper, we get better at recognizing it more quickly. Um, we know ourselves and uh, know some of the best ways to counter some of these things. Uh, you know, I, I used to kind of wrestle more with some of these emotions and states. And now I just realize I'm crazy. I've lost it. I've lost my balance. You know, fear has seized me. I don't know how, how he got his agents into the city and what they've been doing, but I've been had here and, and I need to, I need to go get some help, which means like, maybe you don't directly attack this, the, the symptoms. And so like, sometimes, sometimes you're so worked up with anxiety or anger or sadness or grief or something. Um, think you can't think your way out of it. You, you need to sort of just acknowledge, okay, there it is. I'm suffering. How is it that I get the mind back to strength and balance? Um, and then through part of that process, uh, understanding might arise, but certainly like over the course of our life as practitioners, um, we're maturing and we're, we're learning how to, how to be more skillful and navigate. And so to return to the analogy of the century, it's like the century gets better with his job. He makes mistakes. Um, he doesn't get fired. Uh, but his, his boss lets him know when he makes mistakes and he gets briefs and updates so that eventually he has just the, you know, the right amount of heedfulness because you, there are things you want to let in. Uh, and, and there are things that need to be kept out. And sometimes the conditions are, are more important, uh, are play a critical kind of role in how that, uh, determination is made so like you know if you're going through a stretch where you're extra fragile around some particular emotional dynamic then you need to be extra careful about what it is that you give your attention to so those those six gates are the six sense spaces so you know what we're saying there is you need to be careful of what you look at what you listen to what you think about um and those are those are the primary sort of ones, and that's not to say forevermore you don't watch the news, but like you might be in a 
a place where you're so sensitive that it just leads to angst or depression or uh, grief. And the sentry knows, okay, when I let that in, all hell breaks loose. So I need to be a little more careful and say, not today, sir. <laughs> so, okay, let's move on. Uh, next question we have here is from Joan in Bend. Joan, you want to share your question with us? Sure, Ajahn. Thank you. Um, I appreciated Ajahn Sona's talk last night, and he spoke of Sampanjana as, you know, in his title, he called it expansive awareness, focused attention and expansive awareness. Mm -hmm. And that just caused a question to arise of, uh, does Sampanjana or uh, expansive awareness relate only uh, to the present moment and to um, conditioned experience? Or is there something beyond that? Um, I, I don't know. I'm not sure what skillful inquiry would be around Sampanjana. And uh, so that's, that's the first basic question. Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I kind of, I had a thought that I, I should maybe even start off our question series today talking a little bit about Sampanjana because looking at the questions that came in, um, it stirred up a lot of doubt in people around this term and there are many terms like this in the suttas where the buddha doesn't really give a lot of specificity uh, and some some pajanya is one so you know there's we can talk about it but i don't know that i can add a whole lot more than ajahn uh, gave in his talk last night uh, with some of those examples uh, I can talk a little bit about where it comes up in the Satipatthana Sutta. There's a there's a few other places it comes up uh, in the Sutta Pitaka itself, but you know, really, one needs to turn to the commentaries to start to get all kinds of details and and deal with some of these doubts that might come out. And that's not a place I I tend to go for this sort of thing. Like I I take the Buddha sort of on the face of it. He's he's using language in a way that I think is for the most part very practical and and uh, pointing us to something that's doable for anybody who wants to develop the path and develop a contemplative practice. Um, so I think it is primarily to be exercised in the present moment. And I would say that because of the all the examples that I know of in the suttas, are, are talking about engaging sort of in the, engaging with the mind in the present moment. And it, and it really just means something like Ajahn was describing, like there's more than one level to awareness and there is this kind of balance. We can be very super focused and microscopic in our awareness and, and lose a kind of the broader uh, context as he talked about with this uh, example of the, the bird that needs to both attend to picking out and discerning the difference between a seed and a, a grain of sand, but without losing sort of sense of his environment and how much attention he should be giving to one as opposed to the other and the balance of that. 
And, you know, many of the examples uh, that you find in the suttas are connected with something Ajahn referenced, which is uh, an encouragement for the monks to, to know what's appropriate um, in sense of sense restraint, in sense of their uh, deportment. Um, and so it's like you're, you're clearly knowing that um, and attending to what you're doing. Uh, I can read the most relevant uh, passage from the sutta, and it, it gives it a, a, a more concrete feel. And I think it underscores, you know, what's what's going on in terms of how this relates to the practice of being present uh, and aware. When going forward and returning, he acts clearly knowing. And so clearly knowing here is, is the translation for Sampajanya. When looking ahead and looking away, he acts clearly knowing. When flexing and extending his limbs, he acts clearly knowing. When wearing his robes and carrying his outer robe and bowl, he acts clearly knowing. When eating, when drinking, consuming food, tasting, he acts clearly knowing. When defecating and urinating, he acts clearly knowing. When walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, and keeping silent, he acts clearly knowing. Um, so, you know, this, this kind of clear knowledge in there is like he's attending to what he's doing and he, there's some sort of sense that he, the awareness is, is right there with what he's doing. It's not just focused on maybe the minutia of it, like there's a more global aspect and also there's a sense of the appropriateness of what it is that he's doing. And, you know, for the monks in particular, like some of that appropriateness is like around the ethical conduct, the restraint that the Buddha's uh, uh, asking them to sort of develop. And it's with that sort of clear knowing or something, they're, they're able to sort of fulfill both mindfulness and and also the wisdom are the discipline sort of aspect of their training um and there's really no um you, you know you find it in a few other places in the suttas where again it's kind of like one clearly knows what's what's going on and when i first encountered this teaching you know i kind of looked high and low trying to get more to get my hands around it, like feel like, okay, I really know what Sampajanya is because with some of these terms, like they are a little ineffable and there's a kind of relationship that we might want uh, to, to the concept of the word that really isn't so easily had. Um, and so, I mean, I, I just, I trust I'm, this is not the thing that is like the extra specificity is not the thing that's obstructing my my practice. It's really it's more simple and more direct and uh, 
it's a it's a compound of talking about how awareness is sort of balanced with an element. Like many of my teachers would also talk about, um, Sampajanya is the the wisdom element of of mindfulness. Like it's knowing suitability, it's knowing time and place, the appropriateness of it. But also, it's more fundamental. It's it's kind of like a knowing. You're not just attending to the sense that you're walking in that very pinpoint refined way that we can, but there's a sense that you're walking. Um, and in the context of our meditation practice, like, or even using the postures as you find them in the uh, section of the body in the Satipatthana Sutta, like, there's this other frame, which is like, we're doing this to overcome covet covetousness and grief with regard to the world. We're doing this to overcome the five hindrances. We're doing this to cultivate the seven factors of awakening. Um, and so that's, that context is also held in the mind. Uh, so is there another part to that question, Joan? Or do you have any? I don't think so. I think you've answered pretty well. I uh, appreciate that. That did help uh, you reading. And uh, the image of um, Sampanjana being the wisdom uh, factor of uh, mindfulness is really it, that that's helpful to me. And so I see, I mean, the, you're relating it in the reading to ethical conduct and the precepts. And so that would be a place for me to start also. And also just the global view. I had forgotten that he had talked about that mm. and that it is, it's not just about every little thing that's happening in my mind, but it's about my actions and, and how I am in the world. I, yeah. I'm assuming. Yeah. And like, maybe just to add a little bit more to that, you know, some, sometimes we can be, hammering away at our practice like this is an example that comes up for me all the time sometimes because my main meditation object is breath meditation sometimes excuse me <coughs> sometimes the condition for doing breath meditation aren't aren't favorable i'm too tired or dull um to be doing it and in a, in a moment like that breath meditation because it can be so tranquilizing isn't necessarily the most suitable object so, you know, there needs to be a part of the mind that, that does realize the overarching uh, context of why it is that we practice. Uh, we're practicing as a way to put forth right effort. We're practicing to overcome hindrances. We're and, you know, even though that is a hindrance, like there needs to be some discrimination about what's the most suitable tool to bring to um, putting forth right effort at this time. And sometimes it might not be um, the way that we're focusing. And if we, we lose that, then, you know, we're, we're, we might be putting forth a lot of effort, but, you know, it's not the most effective effort. Uh, and, and I know, you know, having lived in monasteries for years, it's like you see the range of temperaments uh, of people that come to the practice and I'd say all of them that ordain in the communities I live in have a lot of energy, faith, and sincerity in their practice. Um, but you know, some 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 
some types of, of people like are really good at this kind of laser focus, but a little bit weak in uh, applying this kind of broader sort of set of awareness. So like, is this the time to focus in tight or do I also need to give a little bit of attention to sort of paying to my environment, attending to others, attending to time, place. Uh, and this kind of connection with these, like I, I guess for a lay person, the ethical and questions of sense restraint and deportment don't go out the window. I mean, everybody has duties in those dimensions of their life. And um, so it's worth kind of considering, uh, considering that. Like I remember one time somebody came to see one of the Thai teachers I was living with and he was, he was married and he had a child and he was very frustrated because his, his definition of Dhamma practice was overly narrow. And uh, he was really feeling like he wanted to abandon his wife and child uh, so that he could practice because he, he felt he couldn't practice at home or he felt he couldn't practice in the situation he was in. And it's very interesting to watch how this particular teacher sort of uh, met this person and, and talked with him. You know, he, he essentially chastised him for being narrow-minded and selfish and not really seeing the broader context uh, of practice and how to practice with the, uh, the, the duties and the relationship that, that he had there in his life. You know, he, and I was very interested to see how he would respond, sort of like Dhamma practice is the foremost, you should leave your wife and child if that's where your heart is, you know, and he really, I think he really sized this person up and where they were coming from, what their intentions and emotions was. Um, and you could see maybe the other, uh, maybe the other response would be appropriate for somebody in some circumstance. I mean, we know from the story of the Buddha, he left Rahula. So, you know, if one wanted to be idealistic and dogmatic and just apply that across the board, um, one could probably find justification for that. But you really have to attend to sort of where somebody's coming from. And what I saw, or at least what I interpreted in that interaction, is he could see that this person was um, not just motivated by the purest emotions. There was, you know, uh, a sense of selfishness that pervaded. And I remember talking with him after this man left, and he sort of said, this guy's just... A, his conception of what practices is so narrow, and also he's just being selfish. Um, and that's part of the reason he had beyond, behind the advice that he gave because of that. So, all right, well. Thank you, Ajahn. Okay, yeah. Before moving on, I might just make a comment. There was a question from Sarah yesterday about the worldly and the unworldly. And um, I mentioned that I'd look into that. I, I did, but I am going to kind of hold comments on that for just a little bit until we start talking more about Vedana. And uh, it's another one of these areas that is a little bit confusing, and I'm not so sure it's such an important distinction uh, in connection with the 
teachings on Vedana, but we'll see what Ajahn uh, comes up with. So, hmm. Okay, well, let me take uh, one of the public questions that was submitted. This is from Ana from uh, Mexico. I can't pronounce the name of the city. Huitzilek, maybe? Mexico. Dear Ajahn, could you give advice on the mindfulness of the body using the four positions? I have an injury that prevents me from sitting on the floor. So I do meditation on a chair, but even that can be painful. How to deal with this not so ideal situation. So, so Anna, um, I would, my, my advice would be, uh, you know, you can practice mindfulness of the body in so many postures, you know, and like this reading, I just kind of gave out where we're talking about clear comprehension mentions a lot of the postures and movements that make up one's life, stretching and bending and walking and uh, eating and drinking and lying down to sleep. So, you know, mindfulness can be applied really to everything that we do. Uh, in the context of trying to do more formal practice, uh, especially in a time of retreat, uh, one just needs to uh, adjust uh, to find, you know, what's most suitable. You, you mentioned that you're meditating on a chair, but even that can be painful. So you might adjust the length of time so that you're not creating undue suffering. Uh, maybe shorter sits. Uh, you can practice uh, standing and walking meditation. Uh, and so intersperse some of your sitting with that and uh, see if that uh, opens up the possibility to sort of apply yourself to formal practice as much as you'd like to without um, excessive pain. So, um, and we all have, we all have limitations. So, you know, while it's easy to sort of think this is not so ideal. I mean, uh, you shouldn't think of it as an insurmountable obstacle. Just uh, adjust the conditions to, to do your best. Um, and meditation isn't about a posture. It's about what you do with your mind. So let's see, we'll take another question here. This is from uh, Gabrielle in Edmonton. It's another one on Sampajanya. Hello, Ajahn. With regard to the terms Sati and Sampajanya, I thought of this analogy for their meanings. When I'm driving my car, if I pay close attention to traffic and signals and other vehicles, I'm using the mental function called Sati. At the same time, I need to keep the destination in mind. Otherwise, I'll miss a turn or exit if I don't use the mental function of Sampajanya. Is this too simple? And I'd say, no, oh, it's not too simple. I mean, it's, it's a nice little example that sort of illustrates um, a broader swath of uh, attention and awareness than just paying attention to those details that you're talking about there. So, all right, I still have one more uh, public question. No, two more, three more but maybe I'll go back to 
people in the room and just if anyone has a question in the Zoom room and wants to raise their hand. Also, it doesn't necessarily be need to be formulated in the as a question. People have uh, impressions of um, the teachings that Ajahn's giving that they just want to share with with the group. That's also possible. Heather and Matthew. Go ahead. Hi, Ajahn. This is Matthew. Hi, Matthew. Um, Ajahn Sona talked about um, how someone established in right mindfulness lived in a zone of positive feelings mm -hmm. um, or, or dwelled in that. And I was wondering how when such a person is dealing with a situation like the loss of a loved one or observing suffering in other creatures or the kind of situation where in a, a quote unquote normal person would feel grief or pain or a negative emotion, what is there? What does it look like for someone who is having a positive emotion around something that we would normally associate with grief. It could be a, a, a range of some of the emotions he, he mentioned. I mean, they still could be full of goodwill, like w wishing, well, you know, goodwill, like they're not feeling any aversion or ill will because this person they're close to is suffering, which often is a place that someone goes. Um, so they're still experiencing, you know, he, he talked about sort of being in the field. He talked about like a field of positive emotions and they're maybe moving back and forth between various kind of emotions. Um, you know, the one that most readily came to mind when you're describing that is compassion and equanimity. Um, and, you know, compassion absent a sense of like uh, pitying somebody or even like sometimes you, you hear secular definitions of compassion is like suffering with or taking on the suffering of another person. And I don't think that accords with the kind of compassion or karuna that the Buddha is talking about in the suttas. Like I, my understanding of it, the way I talk about it is like uh, love in the face of suffering uh, you don't turn away or withdraw um, care and goodwill and uh, loving attention to somebody just because they're in the grips of suffering. Um, but you, you yourself don't suffer. And, and, you know, he was talking about an arhan in particular. So, you know, this is somebody who's spiritually uh, perfected themselves and they can't is the way they talk about it in the suttas like the conditions for them to suffer even in the face of somebody some somebody else who's going through profound suffering is just not there like they they understand the uselessness of 
that or the unskillfulness of that way of relating to it and they have a better alternative. Like they understand the person, a certain equanimity that that understands this is the nature of the world, this this too belongs. It's not the and it's not apathetic. I mean there's there's something akin to sympathy, but it's um oftentimes the way we feel sympathy, it's tainted still with this sense of it shouldn't be, it doesn't belong, um, or a sense of pity. Um, but you know, at least it's the way I, I envision it. It's like when equanimity is profound and strong, there's still a sense of sympathy for the suffering that, that beings experience. Uh, but it, it does not, it's not an affliction. And part of the reason why is one, one just understands this, this is human nature. Absent having cultivated certain strengths, one's still liable to sort of suffering. And, and, and even, even say emotionally or spiritually, if one is, is perfect, they're still liable to, um, the difficulties of the human realm, pain in particular, um, and the body is still going to age, sicken, and die, and it's still uncomfortable, and there's still unpleasant sights and smells and sounds and tastes and ideas and speech, etc. But one doesn't suffer over these. They don't generate any uh, unskillful or afflictive reactions to these things. They they've they've developed and they understand uh, the way to move and respond and emote in the face of these things. So I, but I, I think the short answer would be probably compassion and equanimity, but there's no reason why uh, it can't be uh, meta or something else. So, okay. Thank you, Ajahn. That was really helpful. Okay, maybe I'll go back to to the other questions we have here. This is from Helen from Richmond, Canada. In regard to the four elements of the aggregates, earth, fire, air, and water, during the breathing exercise this morning, the attention was brought to the pain and the heaviness of the body. Noticing a slight sense of resentment arise. Then recalling Ajahn Sona's briefing on the purpose of right mindfulness to develop awareness of the seven positive factors, the mind is telling me to go back to the feeling of joy, gladness, and gratitude. In this scenario, how should we relate to the job of the sentry mentioned to let in and out the thoughts of negative feeling of the body? The body, the feeling, and the mind are all working there. Is the sentry not doing its job? And the mind is 
is the mind working excessive here? Uh, is the mind working excessive here? It's like, is that, I don't know if that's a reference to, am I thinking about this too hard? <laughs> and you might be, but it, it's, it's not an unreasonable kind of question. Um, you know, one, one needs to, one needs to understand sort of how the Buddha conceives of consciousness uh, in this model and at the risk of getting ahead of Ajahn here, like, you know, sense impressions uh, come and meet one and the consciousness isn't this ever enduring uh, entity. Consciousness arises in contact with the objects of the six senses. So, you know, in a question like this one where uh, we're kind of talking almost at a different level when we're talking about uh, resentment arise, but you can peel it back down to sort of uh, there is a touch sensation, which is pain or what you describe as a heaviness in the body. So, and if we want to use this model of the sentry, that's, that's the guy that's trying to get in the gate. It's like a painful bodily sensation or a kind of heaviness. And um, it's possible that that could sort of lead to suffering. Like here you say a sense of resentment. So, you know, knowing that you, you need to sort of adjust for that and maybe not attend to that. Um, but, you know, as a practitioner, sometimes as soon as we, we recognize we're, we're kind of responding in a way that's not optimal or it's creating sort of negativity. Uh, sometimes the self-correction can happen very kind of quickly. Like the way I talk to myself about it is like, don't create suffering around this. It's just pain. It's just painful sensation. Um, and if, if the mind is, is sort of fit, that need not be, that need not be, um, something that can't pass through um, the gate into consciousness uh, because it's not, it's not a danger. Like when you have an acceptance of the naturalness of pain and that it's inevitable that uh, all of the six senses have pleasant, neutral, and painful sort of experiences associated with them. So, uh, the thing that shouldn't get through the gate is this kind of negative reaction uh, to it. Like, so that's the thing that you want to sort of say, okay, I'm not going to feed you. I'm not going to give you quarter. I'm not going to allow you to sort of hang out. And one way of countering that would be to turn the mind to um, more positive sort of mental factors. So, in the context of meditation, though, um, you really could just return to the primary object of meditation. Like, you know, see, if just with, you can just withdraw your attention from it if it's not too strong or distracting uh, and return to the breath. And then, you know, it's like that uh, provocation of the painful cessation or the, like, the resentment that's a negative reaction to the pain 
uh, fades away because the mind is otherwise kind of engaged in, in wholesome dhammas, even if it's as simple as attending to the breath. Um, and Atya made a little reference to this, but like you can breathe in these positive emotions. Uh, so I hope that answers your question, Helen. Uh, this one's from Carolyn from Eugene in the USA. Ajahn, could you please speak to focused attention and panoramic awareness in the context of this at-home retreat? Whether we're sitting, walking, navigating our homes with family members present or attending to chores or personal care. Thank you. Well, Carolyn, um, I don't know that it's all that different than the life of living in monastery, um, you know, during retreat time, uh, we organize the monastery, so maybe it's a bit more kind of refined. But this panoramic awareness is something we need to have with us at all times. And, uh, you know, in the monastery, if we have more refined conditions, or if you're a retreat center, we have more re refined conditions, then uh, there needs to be a, an awareness of how to sort of adjust and what's proper. So like in the monastery, uh, we train and there's certain ways that we walk where we're sending as little sound as possible so our robes are not rustling or in thailand we wear these flip-flops and they be not really mindful of how you walk in flip-flops or thongs um they make an incredible racket and uh when you enter the monastery you get a very quick training on sort of not sending a lot of slap 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 noise when you walk and there's times maybe when you're working or something like this and it's not it's not a big disturbance and it's more important to attend to the task at hand than making sure you don't send any sort of loud sounds when you're walking. But if you're approaching the meditation hall uh, or you're walking by your teacher's hut, um, then panoramic awareness should tell you this is the time you want to give full attention to being considerate and not disturbing somebody who's trying to put forth effort um, or you don't want to disturb your teacher, disturb his solitude um, by making much sound as you walk by. Maybe you can walk by in a way that doesn't break the sense of solitude that he has uh, in, in his hut. So, uh, and, you know, there may be panoramic awareness sort of like during this time of practicing in your home might be not to completely cut yourself off at certain times of day or something. It's hard to know what people's living situations are, or what kind of arrangement they have. But, um, you know, it's just, it's just discrimination, this bring a, a little wisdom to how it is that you you focus and attend to your mind um, and and not just uh, solely kind of focusing sort of at the task at hand and, and just tuning everything out. So, um, you know, so it could be 
how does you bring this discernment or wisdom into sort of setting up your retreat environment, setting up the relationship that you have with the people in your home um, so that there's a workable situation for both yourself and your intention to sort of practice the retreat as best as suits your home situation and also doesn't overly compromise um, their sort of comfort. So, all right, well, one last question. This one comes from Maitri in uh, Jacksonville, USA. I'm gonna assume that's Jacksonville, Florida. I was caught by the phrase skilled emoter from Ajahn's specific instructions for day two with regards to inducing, if you can, gladness, well-being, and ease while focusing on the breath. Is this a nudge in the direction of Sampajanya or peripheral awareness, he elaborated. By peripheral awareness, does he mean the Eightfold Path? Liberation? If you have time, I would appreciate to hear you speak of this. So. Well, I think what Ajahn's talking about when he talked about the skilled emoter, uh, that goes way beyond um, Sampajanya. You know, I think he's talking uh, more there about the Eightfold Path well cultivated or the path of practice well cultivated. Um, and it's more like the fruits of having sort of done the path. Sampajanya is a little more um, basic. Uh, and, you know, along the lines of his, his talk last night, he's talking about the Buddha kind of getting us started in retraining the mind. And one of the chief tasks is uh, like learning how to pay attention. So, uh, so that would be my response to that. Um, I'm pretty sure Ajahn will be talking more about skilled emoter and I look forward to that. It's a nice motivating um, image of where we would like this practice to lead us. So, all right. Well, thank you all for your your time and participation today. And uh, people have questions for tomorrow. Please have those in by 9 a.m. And we'll go through and select those. And uh, we'll see where Ajahn's talk leads us tonight. Um, our next gathering will be the evening chanting at 7 p.m. And then Ajahn's next talk. Number three will premiere at 8.15 tonight. So wish you all well with your practice and I'll see you tomorrow.